This is episode number 94 of Unfolding Words, Divine Deception, How Women in the Bible Use Trickery to Trip Up the Enemy. I'm your host, Antracia Moorings, and every week I come and share biblical truth to offer light for your walk and life for your soul. Thank you for tuning in this week. I have a question for you. Have you ever struggled with a scripture where there are people who are lying or deceiving others, but then they wind up blessed as a result? That's exactly what we're going to talk about today. So we're going to go all the way back to the book of Genesis, where this starts. Everything, just about everything starts in the book of Genesis. So in Genesis chapter two, we all know this story. Eve is targeted by the serpent in the Garden of Eden, and he persuades her to eat the forbidden fruit. And then she shares that fruit with Adam. And then by eating this forbidden fruit, Adam and Eve disobeyed God's command. And this act of disobedience has a domino effect for years to come. The scriptures don't tell us why the serpent spoke to Eve instead of Adam, but a lot of people, commentators included, assume it was Eve because she was easier to deceive. But the scriptures don't state this or imply or hint at this in any way, that she was easier to deceive than Adam. But we do know that Eve's excuse for eating the fruit was because she was deceived, and we're told that Adam was not deceived. So as a result of this, Adam and all men don't have this stigma attached to them that Eve does, that she's easily gullible or easily deceived. But one thing we do know is that Eve acknowledged and confessed her deception to God in Genesis chapter 3, verse 13. So she didn't stay in this state of being deceived So it's a wrong theology to use Eve as a sort of model for all women throughout all time. So she was deceived for this short period of time. She confessed it and she moved on from it. But she seems to be stuck in this state of deception where all women after her are labeled the same way. So interesting thing is that Eve's deception is never mentioned again in the Old Testament or in the Gospels. None of the Hebrew Bible or the Gospels felt the need to keep bringing up this momentary failure of Eve. And none of the writers of the Old Testament or the Gospels even mention or hint at the fact that women are more gullible or more easily deceived. Let me share something with you from the IVP Women's Commentary. It says the biblical view of deception is complex. It seems that God can use even deception to forward divine purposes. Although throughout the Bible, many women and men and men engage in deception it is not always explicitly condemned, especially when it advances the cause of the underdog and more importantly, the unfolding of God's plan. So that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at the issue of deception by women. There are many instances of it by men as well. David is a great example of using deception. Um, We see Jacob deceiving, but we're going to look at Rebecca in Genesis chapter 27. And we see this dual deception of Rebecca. She was the wife of Abraham's son, Isaac. And Rebecca helped her favorite son, Jacob, trick his father, Isaac, into giving him the blessing that was intended for his twin brother, Esau. 
But when you look carefully, you see that she was really the mastermind behind this plan. And a lot of commentators see Rebecca's role in this deception as a sort of favoritism because we see that Isaac favored Esau. So she was simply acting out her favoritism toward Jacob. And they also, the commentators, see her role as a disrespect for her husband and harmful to the family. Because in the ancient Near East times, part of the Hebrew family system was wives were expected to be submissive or to defer to their husbands. And the sons were expected to have a higher regard for their father more than their mother. And if this was the context that they lived in, Rebecca was overstepping her bounds. But an important detail that a lot of people seem to miss in Rebecca's motives is the word that she got from the Lord when she was pregnant. We see this in Genesis chapter 25, verses 22 through 23, and this is often overlooked. And in this part of the story, God revealed to Rebecca what Isaac didn't know at the time, that Jacob, who would be the second born of the twins, is in fact God's chosen one. So I'm going to read Genesis 25 verses 22 through 23. It says the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Rebecca knew that her husband Isaac would follow the social norms of the day and give the blessing to the firstborn son, who was his favorite, Esau. And if you read the verses carefully, you'll see that Isaac's blindness, which was natural, but really was symbolic of his spiritual blindness, prevented him from seeing that Esau, who was a hunter, who eventually sold his birthright and chose Hittite wives, was not the best choice for carrying on the blessing that was promised to his grandfather, Abraham. So Rebecca was very smart. She was aware of her husband, Isaac's blindness and his blindness, spiritual blindness was the motivating factor behind her acting to bring God's will to pass. So her being willing to take the risk of bringing a curse upon herself shows how determined she was to fulfill God's purpose, even down to using deceptive tactics. And a lot of commentators suggest that God played an active role in this deception because he prevented Isaac from seeing through the sham when his son Jacob came in dressed up like Esau. But I don't know if I would go that far to suggest that God was an active and willing participant. Author Sharon Pace Jensen, who wrote The Women of Genesis from Sarah to Potiphar's Wife, says this of Rebecca. The portrayal of Rebecca shows that women in Israel were viewed as persons who could make crucial decisions about their futures, whose prayers were acknowledged, who might know better than men what God designed, and who could apparently take the steps necessary to support God's plans for the community. And that's the end of her quote. 
even when those plans included deception, women were still taking active roles to change the course of the legacy of their family's lives. And notice that the deception is always used when a person is acting as an enemy of God. So this deception is used against the enemy, the enemy who is seemingly trying to get in the way of God's plan. That's an important detail to remember about the role of deception in the Bible. So we looked at Rebecca. Next, let's look at Tamar. Tamar is also in the book of Genesis. And the legacy of deception in Jacob's family seems to run deep because this is still his family that is using deceptions as a means to get their way, so to speak. So Tamar deceived her father-in-law, Judah. We see this in the book of Genesis chapter 38. And in the middle, smack dab in the middle of a long narrative about Joseph, Joseph was Judah's brother who was favored by their father, Jacob. We find this story of Tamar. She was the childless widow of Judah's eldest son, Ur. So according to the Leverite law, this is a marriage law, Judah told his next son, Onan, to fulfill his duty to marry Tamar and give her children. So he agreed to this by having relations with her. But every time the, the scriptures say he spilled his semen on the ground to avoid providing her with offspring. Then after Onan died, Judah promised his remaining son, Sheila, to Tamar once the boy was old enough to marry. But when Sheila came of age and the marriage did not happen like Judah said it would, Tamar saw that Judah was not going to keep his word. Maybe he saw that she was something of a black widow and didn't want to lose another son. We don't know, but he did not agree to the promise that he gave to her. So Tamar's desire was to ensure that she had children to carry on the family line. This is what was so important to her and the impetus behind what she does later. She takes matters into her own hands. She dresses up as a prostitute in a disguise and puts herself in a position where Judah will see her as he's traveling. So Judah propositioned her. And afterwards, says that he will give her a payment, but he didn't have it at the time. He would send her a a goat, a, a young goat, a kid. Notice the symbolism. He promises her a kid. And so she says, well, until I get it, I need something sort of a security to know that you're going to keep your word. She knows exactly who her father-in-law is. So she wants something to hold him accountable to his word. So she asks for his signet cord and staff. And all of these signified his wealth and authority. Most importantly, his authority, because the signet would represent his ability to sign, you know, his name for any purposes, So she uses as collateral for the payment that he promised to deliver later. So time passes and she realizes that she's pregnant. And when he learned that she was pregnant, he orders her to be executed by being burned. This was the punishment for the act of prostitution by a priest's daughter. So Tamar says, This is not happening. She goes to clear her name by showing Judah the personal items that he gave to her as proof 
that he was responsible for her pregnancy. So Judah had to eat crow. He had to admit his guilt. And he said this. He said, she is more in the right than I, since I did not give her my son, Sheila. So let me share something that Old Testament scholar and theologian Walter Brueggemann wrote. He said, Tamar has committed the kind of sin the good people prefer to condemn, engaging in deception and illicit sex and bringing damage to a good family. For a moment, until aware of his own involvement, Judah reacts on the basis of that sort of morality. In ways apparently congruent with popular morality, Judah has spurned the claims of his daughter-in-law. By his indifference, he has violated her right to well-being and dignity in the community. The narrative juxtaposes his prudent but self-serving withholding and her deceptive harlotry. The picture that seems to be painted is that Judah is upright and honorable and Tamar is simply a woman who plays the harlot. But in the end, Tamar got her justice. She found a way even though it was through deception, to make Judah provide her with children to ensure the survival of her legacy. And interestingly, one of her twin sons, Perez, was an ancestor of David. The story of Tamar and Judah also found its way into Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. So Tamar, the prostitute, became a heroine of sorts whose name has endured throughout generations. And because Tamar was not a virgin or a wife or a mother before all this happened, her fate would have been to live on the edges of society. But she took her legacy into her own hands and became the only woman in the Bible who is declared righteous. Now, before this, the only person who had been declared righteous was Abraham. And the next one is a woman, Tamar who is looked upon initially as a prostitute. Very, very good stuff. So there are a number of women after this who use deception, some who were unrighteous, but more who are righteous. In Exodus, we read about the midwives who defied Pharaoh's orders to kill Israelite boys, and then they later lied about it. They were said to have feared God and then were rewarded with families of their own for lying to the leader of their land. And then in the book of Joshua, when the guards came to capture the Israelite spies, Rahab, the prostitute, see that pops up again, claims that they had already escaped when they were actually hiding on her roof. So instead of denouncing her, the Bible honors her by saying, by faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. We see this in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 29. And there are many others, many other women, J.L., who killed Sisera with the tent peg through his head. And she did this by luring him into her tent by means of deception. There was Queen Esther who concealed her Jewish identity in the Persian court. And then there was Michael who lied and said that King David was sick in order to save him from Saul, her father's violence. And the interesting thing is that all of these women either work to protect the lineage of God's chosen people, specifically the one of the coming Messiah, or they were part of Jesus's lineage. The enemy who deceived Eve, the same woman who was to carry the royal messianic seed, ended up being tripped up 
by women who work to keep the royal seed alive. Deception is not sanctioned or approved or given like a gold stamp of approval, except when it deals with an enemy. So when there's an enemy involved, you don't show him your whole hand. You deal him back the hand that he gave you, which is deception, which we see time and time again through these women in the Bible. And then if you read closely in the Old Testament, there's a lot of stories that show that these lies took place when lives were in danger. When you read the Old Testament more closely, the question about lying makes you wonder, how closely are we to follow God's rules? And in an article published in Bible Study Magazine, author Mart Ebaugh said this, what is Jesus saying about daily obedience, not just life or death situations? What about practical things like giving? Is it 10%? Church attendance, can I skip today? And TV consumption, am I allowed to watch that? God uses rules to reveal his heart so we can better submit to him. Just don't spend so much time trying to figure out the rules that you miss hearing his voice. So what he said, I think, is very important to understanding the subject of deception. Many of us want to be hard and fast and say it's a black and white issue. But clearly, when it's when we're dealing with the enemy, it's not so cut and dry. And in the book of James, chapter two, there's a context for all of these Old Testament stories. There's these Old Testament examples of faith being lived out, faith in action. James highlights Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac, his son. He also gives a spotlight to Rahab's willingness to save the spies. So James picks out stories about killing and lying, things that would never happen if the rules were followed. So all of these stories of deception point to the fact that we can have compassion for women who were marginalized or who were desperate. They demonstrate a sort of resourcefulness that still exists in women today when they're faced with difficulties. And these stories help us to look at the Bible and even at our own selves with a new eye and a new perspective with regard to the mysterious ways of God. We want to figure God out and put him in a box, but we can't always do that. These women were held up to us as examples of how God uses the unexpected to win over obstacles that humans face. And we see how he intervenes on behalf of his coming Messiah. All of this leads us to kind of marvel at how God uses the scandalous to bring his plan to life. Never underestimate what God can do or what he can use, or how he uses it. God is always full of surprises. So that's it for this episode of Unfolding Words. If you have any questions about this, you can always email me. Check the show notes for my email address. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. I hope that you share the podcast with a friend. Tell them about it. Have them subscribe as well. And I'll be back here next week, unfolding more of God's word. Until then, may God's word be a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. God bless you.